0: There are many scary stories of people who have disappeared while hitchhiking. We all know about Ivan Milat, the backpacker killer, and we all know that many hitchhikers who disappear, they are never found. But there are still people who, despite knowing the dangers, choose to stick their thumb out for a ride and risk becoming part of their own podcast episode. People who went missing while hitchhiking this week are mysteriously listed. Number 5. Jennifer Beard 25-year-old Jennifer Beard, who was originally from Haward Flintshire in Wales, Jennifer had been teaching in Tasmania, Australia, before going to New Zealand on a tramping holiday. She had arranged to meet her fiancé, Reg Phillips, at Milford Sound on New Year's Eve 1969. The couple planned on going hiking in the area's stunning mountain scenery. But unfortunately, Jennifer would never make it. She was last seen hiking on the west coast of the South Island, heading towards her final destination on that day. January 3, 1970. A family travelling stopped by the Hast River Bridge. Their eight-year-old daughter needed to use the bathroom. When she returned to the car, she told her father there was a naked woman lying asleep under the bridge. Her father did not want to get involved. He wrote to offer some drunkard still recovering from their New Year's celebrations, and they left without investigating further. January 19th, 1970, as it had been almost three weeks since Reg had been in contact with Jennifer, he finally reached out to her family, who also confirmed there was no contact with their daughter. Jennifer Beard was reported missing to the local police. Witnesses would immediately come forward. Her last known whereabouts was with a middle-aged man on New Year's Eve at around 12.30pm. This man was seen driving a dust-covered, bluish-green, mid-1950s Velox. He was seen with Jennifer at the rest area by the Hast Bridge, allegedly where he was having car trouble. The same day Jennifer was reported missing, soldiers from the National Army assisting the search for the missing woman they found Jennifer's body beneath the Hast Bridge. Police would later theorise she had been surprised while going to the toilet. Her body was so badly decomposed, it was impossible to determine the cause of death. This was made more difficult as the hide bone, which is a U-shaped bone at the base of the throat, was missing. This is what is usually inspected in cases of strangulation. Whether a bird took it away or the police missed it during the search, it was never discovered. However, the police believed she was most likely strangled. Jennifer's shirt had been ripped apart. Her tracksuit trousers had been neatly rolled down to beneath her knees, while her hiking boots were still on. It was clear she had been brutally sexually assaulted. All identification, her backpack and beloved camera were missing. This would spark one of the largest hunts in New Zealand history, even to this day. Almost 60,000 people were interviewed. Some 33,000 Voloxes were in New Zealand at the time, and being it was 1970, the police had to manually check all of them. January 22nd, 1970 – a 50 year old truck driver from Timaru with the same make and model car as the witness sightings with Jennifer, he was taken in for questioning by police. His car was searched but he was never charged. He claimed to have been on a fishing trip in the area, but he had driven the road Jennifer had been hitchhiking the day earlier, December 30th and not December 31st. The same day the truck driver was taken in for questioning, a pair of trousers were found 100 metres from where Jennifer's body was discovered. They were sent away for forensic examinations, but unfortunately, they would further sit in a backlog of cases for several months. When they were eventually examined, a receipt with the truck driver's name on it was found in one of the pockets. Despite this, and despite the fact the head of investigation wanted to charge the truck driver with Jennifer's murder the Crown decided there was insufficient evidence to go forward with the charges. The truck driver denied involvement in Jennifer's murder until his death in 2003. But in 2008, local media reported that police were investigating a potential new suspect in Jennifer's murder. This suspect's name has never been publicly named. The last update in this case came in 2013. An accused sex offender confessed to a close friend that he had carried out Jennifer's murder. However, before the police could interview him, he ended his own life only days later. And again, unfortunately, Jennifer Beard's case went cold. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Number four, Jamie Herdman. 26-year-old trained chef Jamie Herdman was from Wakatani, New Zealand. Jamie was working for a furniture removal company in Broome, Western Australia, when he decided to go for a road trip. He spent a while working on a combi van he intended to drive around Australia. When his family didn't hear from their son for a week, they reported him missing on December 5, 2006. Police launched an investigation, and according to witnesses, the dreadlocked traveller was last seen hitchhiking at Dowley Waters, which is about 370 miles south of Darwin. Police found Jamie's van abandoned near the Highway Inn Roadhouse on the Stewart Highway. The van was prone to overheating and was left unlocked. His keys were not in the ignition, but his cell phone, clothes, toothbrush, identification, credit card and some cash were still inside. This indicated he planned on returning to the van after a short time. The issue being the family really weren't much help because Jamie didn't really have a plan where he was headed. His brother Carl said the route he was taking didn't make much sense to him, as Jamie was a keen fisherman and generally stayed close to the coast on his travels. Jamie didn't tell his family and friends he was leaving Broome, but his friends would later report to police that Jamie was being paranoid and worried about being followed in the days before his disappearance. Initially, police and Jamie's family thought that possibly Jamie was oblivious of the search for him, and he may have been stranded in a remote Aboriginal community in the Northern Territory, which was cut off by heavy flooding in the area. But as time passed, this scenario became more unlikely. Head of Investigation Sergeant Pollock said, quote, basically he's disappeared off the face of the earth, unquote. Missing persons posters were put up in every pub, club and service station between Daly Waters where Jamie was last seen and Darwin, where police believed he was headed. Jamie's father Steve and brother Carl arrived in Darwin to retrace Jamie's steps. Quote, We just want to sort this thing out. We just want to find our boy. We want to sort things out in our own mind. Unquote. But despite an exhaustive air and ground search, police have never found any trace of Jamie Herdman, and his disappearance remains unsolved. Number 3. David Stack. On June 10, 1976, the body of a young man was found in landfill in rural Toole County, Utah. The man had brown hair and dark brown eyes, and was around 5 foot 9, and aged somewhere between 17 and 22 years old. The autopsy determined he had been shot twice in the head, and had been murdered in the last 24 hours. Witnesses had reported seeing him the day before in the nearby town of Wendover at approximately 3pm. The police had no suspects, and didn't even know if they were looking for more than one person. They didn't know the motive behind the murder, although the man was found with no identification or belongings, so a robbery gone wrong was a possibility here. Unfortunately, police could not find any further information on their John Doe, so the case would go cold for the next four decades. The John Doe was just as unknown as the identity of his killer. 2015 The Toole County Sheriff's Office was receiving training sessions on the National Missing and Unidentified Person System database. It was only then they would come across a possible match from dental records between their John Doe and missing 18-year-old David Stack from Broomfield, Colorado, who went missing in June 1976. In May 2015, their John Doe was exhumed and DNA was collected – A month later, the samples were confirmed to belong to David. David Stack was born July 5, 1957. In 1975, he graduated from New Milford High School in Connecticut. Despite being one of nine children, he stood out amongst his siblings due to his charismatic and adventurous nature. At the time of his disappearance, he was living with one of his sisters in Broomfield, but was going to hitchhike to one of his brother's homes in Berkeley, California, to learn a carpentry trade. Unfortunately, he would never make it. Since David was hitchhiking, his family did not know his exact route or where he would be from day to day. He was subject to whoever was able to give him a ride. He would call his mother Kathleen from time to time from payphones to give her updates on his trip. However, when the call stopped, his mother knew something was wrong and she reported her son missing. Unfortunately, given it was 1976, it wasn't as easy for authorities to communicate across state lines so the police in Colorado weren't aware of the body being found in Utah and in turn, the Sheriff's Department in Utah didn't know about the missing persons report either. The cases quickly went cold on both sides. David's parents passed away without receiving answers as to what happened to their son. His siblings, though, hoped they would see a resolution in David's case, and get justice for David. The police do admit, though, it is an uphill battle at this point, as many witnesses in the case have since died or have disappeared themselves. But all involved want nothing more but to see the person or persons who killed him behind bars. Number 2. Sherry Doe Shortly after 5pm on March 24th, 1976, a fisherman found a teenage female's body face down and half-naked in the shallows of Harpeth River, around 200 yards from a bridge at McCroy Lay. She was washed up against a branch in the river. All she was wearing was a white bra and blue jeans. In the jeans pockets, the young woman carried no identification – All she had was one nickel, a black comb, and most interestingly, a photograph of a young blonde-haired boy with the name Little Charlie and a phone number written on the back. The girl was either Native American, Hispanic, and or white. She was between 14 and 17 years old, 5 foot 2, and around 120 to 130 pounds. Sherry Doe had black brown hair and brown eyes. As I mentioned, she was found wearing a white bra and blue jeans, but also a rawhide bracelet and a choker-style necklace with beads and a white dove attached. A blue blouse with white polka dots was later located hanging from a tree three miles upstream from where her body was found. The medical examiner determined the young woman had been dead for less than 24 hours – The cause of death was ruled to be drowning, but it wasn't clear if she'd fallen in herself whilst under the influence, or someone had murdered her. Bruises were found on her legs and breasts. It was also noted that she had had sex within a few days of her death, but it wasn't clear if this was consensual. However, based on her shirt being removed, her pants being unbuttoned, and the fact she was covered in bruises it did appear to police that they were most likely investigating a sexual assault and murder. Investigators called the phone number on the back of the photo, and it belonged to a man named Charles Moore, or Little Charlie, a 24-year-old man from East Nashville. Charles claimed that he and his brother-in-law, Milton Collins, were driving southeast along Interstate 24 in Nashville in Milton's truck on March 15, 1976, when they came across two female hitchhikers. One of the women said her name was Sherry and matched the description of the Jane Doe, the other being a slender blonde woman around the same age wearing wire-rimmed glasses. The men said the two women told them they had escaped from a Santa Monica mental hospital in Minnesota and they were headed to Haines City, Florida, around 700 miles southeast of Nashville as this was where the blonde woman's husband was waiting for them. They said that Sherry was in the mental hospital due to alcoholism, whilst the blonde was being treated for being suicidal, even showing the men the visible scars on her wrists. Charles said they dropped the women off near an exit, 85 miles southeast of Nashville. He said he saw them get into another vehicle, headed in the same direction, but could not remember the description of the vehicle. He said he wrote his number on the back of the photo, as this was the only paper he had, and he wanted them to be able to reach him if they were ever in the same area again, that he was worried about them and wanted to help them all he could. Nine days later, Sherry Doe's body was found 90 miles in the opposite direction from where the two men last saw the women. Despite the information provided by Charles and Milton – police were never able to locate Sherry's blonde friend. A check of hospital records in Santa Monica did not return any results for escaped patients. Fingerprints and dental records were also later checked against national databases, but have not yielded any hits. And unfortunately, this is one cold case that may never be solved. The grave markers in the local cemetery where Sherry was buried were moved, So, it isn't exactly clear where her remains are actually located. All they do have are post mortem police photographs. Given how soon she was found after death, detailed composites were also made. But unfortunately, no DNA has been stored on file. Number one Ingrid Bauer. On the night of August 16, 1972, 14-year-old Ingrid Bauer asked permission from her father, Oscar, to visit her boyfriend, Larry, at his home in Pine Grove near Woodbridge, Ontario, three and a half miles away from her Kleinberg home. The family had been away on vacation, but Oscar, Ingrid and Ingrid's older brother had decided to return home early due to the poor weather. Ingrid wanted to surprise Larry with her early return, and Oscar agreed to the visit. So Ingrid took off barefoot at 9.30pm, promising to return home an hour later. Ingrid did not take any money nor any other belongings with her. Hitchhiking was the norm for this area. It was semi-rural, and not as developed as other residential areas around Toronto, and with no public transport, It was not unusual for Ingrid and other teens to hitchhike to get around. However, it must be noted this would be the first time Ingrid would hitchhike at night. Not long after, Ingrid's brother Brent left to drive to the local convenience store. He would see his sister walking south hitchhiking only 300 yards from her home. It was only when Larry happened to call the Bauer home later that night that anyone was aware that Ingrid had not made her final destination that night. Oscar and Brent began a panicked search for her. Larry also got on his bike and headed towards the Bauer home. But when Ingrid could not be found, Oscar contacted the police to report his daughter missing. A frantic search began that night. Friends and volunteers came out in large numbers. According to the Toronto Star newspaper, as many as 200 people scoured the 20 square miles surrounding the Bower home, the focus being on ditches on the routes she would have normally travelled. The early theory was that maybe Ingrid had been the victim of a hit-and-run accident. August 17, 1972, 12.28pm. Local law enforcement listed her as missing on the province-wide tele-network, which broadcasted Ingrid's description on police radio every hour for three weeks. Numerous Kleinberg residents recalled hearing a young person crying out in the area of Islington Avenue at around 10pm, the same location where her brother Brent had seen her earlier. They also reported seeing a pickup truck of an unknown make and colour in the area. Police also waded into the nearby Humber River for five miles, and scuba divers plunged 40 feet underwater into an old gravel pit. Unfortunately, all efforts came up with nothing. Hoping for a quick resolution in the case, the York Regional Police set up a five-person task force. Together, they interviewed hundreds of witnesses, as well as prisoners who were charged with child abductions. They distributed more than 15,000 missing persons posters right across Canada. They followed up on any lead, no matter how obscure or small. A reward of $3,000 was raised by the Bowers, the company Oscar worked for, and the York Regional Police. A billboard was erected with Ingrid's image and an appeal for information. Oscar would personally man the tip hotline equipped with a police recording device, Unfortunately, none led to any answers as to what happened to Ingrid. Her disappearance became the most publicised up to that point in Ontario history. In 1973, a body was discovered in the Halton region. It was widely believed at the time that this was going to be Ingrid Bower. However, dental records proved otherwise. There has also been reports of sightings of Ingrid across Canada and the United States. One said she'd been seen walking on the side of the road near Lindsay, heading towards Pembroke with a guitar and an older boy of around 18. While other witnesses reported seeing Ingrid hitchhiking in the area before being picked up by a blue Thunderbird and working as a waitress in Vancouver. The most concerning to Ingrid's family was a report that she was being held in a North York apartment, but this, along with the other reported sightings, were proven false. Before Ingrid's father, Oscar, passed away, he had her declared dead. During the course of the investigation, there were five suspects, one being Donald Everingham, who would be later found guilty of raping an eight-year-old girl and attacking an 18-year-old woman. However, all were interviewed and they had confirmable alibis. They would all eventually be cleared of any involvement as at the time of this recording, the case is with the York Regional Police Cold Case Unit, and they still receive tips from time to time, which they follow up with the hopes of finding answers. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.